Steve, happy Monday, man. <laughs> happy Monday to you. I feel like it's a while since we've done one of these things. We've been running Death Hike content and haven't had a normal Monday minute in a few weeks. Yeah, no, it feels good to be back. Yeah, being back, you're actually out of town, so I'm I'm glad you're back back to get uh, <laughs> get back to work here. <laughs> decided to do a road trip with the family over to the Oregon coast for uh really yeah Tuesday through Sunday or Tuesday through Saturday really yeah um, had a good time other than took my trailer over and like I backed into this fence and just completely wiped <laughs> the thing out <laughs> it was uh whoops yeah you think it was the first time I backed up a trailer or something but yeah um had a good time the kids had a blast and brought the dog over and just running on the beach and playing and picking up shells and it was a good trip yeah, that's cool, man. Well, speaking of uh, dad life and family stuff, um, when I had Jake on a podcast call to record a quick segment for uh, the death hike thing, he like went off on a rant, man. Uh, and this was prior to the quote unquote recording, but the thing was actually recording. So uh, I'm going to hit pause and play this, what was supposed to be off air segment from Jake uh, because it was hilarious. And then, Steve, I'm going to get right back to you and ask you a question about it after the fact. So hang tight. Here's this segment from Jake from last week. Did you have a good weekend? Yeah, I uh, just worked on that, getting that gazebo up all weekend. Yeah, nice. Got it done. Did he send you a picture? No, you didn't. Yeah, I can send you a picture. Turned out good. You don't send me man stuff like that yet. Oh, you know, it's like old dad, like, hey, look, I worked in my yard. <laughs> I imagine you and Steve wake up every morning and like the Home Depot sound comes on on a Sunday morning. <laughs> you guys put on your dad's shoes, get a cup of coffee, put on your ball cap, and then just get the day rolling. <laughs> put on your ball cap. Your ball cap. I, I wouldn't say hat because hat's like a flat brim to me. Ball cap is <laughs> a, 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 like a... Um, What's the baseball team out in Missouri? Like a um, what? The Cardinals, you turd. Okay, Cardinals. Cardinals. So yeah, so like an old school. Oh, that's a sweet gazebo. Yeah, it is, dude. Because I built um, it like a boss. Yeah, it is pretty sweet. Um, yeah, like a St. Louis Cardinals, just you know, super bent brim hat. Yeah, you know, and then you got the dad shoes. You know, like the 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 New Balance dad shoes because I know you have those. I know you do. <laughs> you, and then, and then, and then this, you're not at this keep age going, yet. Keep going. You're not at this age yet, but like, um, uh, denim shorts with, with a belt and tucked in white shirt, you know, like, but you're not that age. You're, you're what? 34, 36. So, okay. Maybe you are that age. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, all I'm trying to say is, um, you're older than me <laughs> yeah we've, that's been established i'm walking on thin ice right now you're talking to my boss like this <laughs> <laughs> oh okay. dude that was pretty good I, that was entertaining no but no seriously the home depot sound is just like i imagine what is the home scene. depot sound like home the, depot doesn't have a sound okay okay hang on hang on Do we have like time real quick i'll pull it up go right ahead now. okay like from their commercial yeah like so like you music? wake up you wake up and this is you. <laughs> I'm going to make that my alarm. Dude, so, well, yeah, alarm for Saturdays and Sundays, you know. That way you wake up and, and then it starts, like, getting the little beat going on, you know. You get the lawnmower out. That's a good pick-me-up. 
It, it honestly is, man. If you're not into that rap stuff, you can enjoy a good Home Depot tune. All right, Steve. So there you go, man. We are boring dads. <laughs> and I guess that that's why Jake's fired. I mean, that's, I, uh, yeah, I don't yeah. know, like executive decision. He needs to be disciplined in some manner. Yeah. Can't have that around, that attitude. Uh-oh. That was freaking so funny, man. <laughs> he sent me something. He had to send me something from uh, from the shop the other day, too. And I open it up. And there's this giant printout of an old school New Balance dad shoe in there. Like He's just <laughs> relentless with giving me the dad jokes now. So. Uh, but I don't know. I think that Home Depot music, I think there's something to that. I almost wanted like to see it. if we could get rights for the podcast or something. Yeah, it's kind of motivating, man. I know, dude. Get I out told... there on Saturday and get some yard work done. Yeah, dude. Set that as the alarm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's, uh, we're going to get to listener questions. couple quick things before we do. Um, number one, you don't even know about this, Steve, but last week uh, I mentioned we we're going to do a giveaway through the podcast in May. And I was talking about how uh, I've been slacking on reviews and things like that for the podcast because we used to pick a review almost weekly and oh, like yeah. send those guys a shirt or a hat. And I yeah, what the hell, that. dude? I know. So <laughs> I have been slacking, and to make up for that, instead of doing just a shirt or a hat, we're going to do a two hundred fifty dollars Exomont Gear gift card in May. You can enter by leaving a review by sending us an email uh, with a guest suggestion or a topic suggestion or something like that. Um, I think I had sign up for the newsletters an option in there. So um, basically just as a thank you to you guys for continuing to support the podcast. If you just can like give us some feedback, leave a review. Um, again, send us that message. Sign up to receive emails. We will pick a winner at the end of May and get you guys that gift card for the winner. One thing on the email too, I didn't, uh, I kept mentioning, I kept meaning to mention on the podcast about the death hike about this, but I don't recall that I actually did, is we, in addition to the podcast on the death hike, we published a, like an article um, on the EXO blog about the death hike. And some of you guys might want to check that out because there's a sample gear list there. Um, I put my gear list up from the death hike. So if you want to see more about the specifics there, and then there's a bunch of photos too from the death hike. Um, so if you guys heard about it, but wanted to like kind of see the country, see more of the experience, um, go over to the Exo Mount Gear website and in the journal section of the blog section, you can get that. And the reason I mentioned that now in relation to the email is we send out an email most weeks and yes, it will have podcasts. A lot of times it'll have a video element in there and a new blog content, something like that. But if you guys only listen to the podcast and don't get the email, sometimes you're actually missing um, some of the content that we send out. So there you go. If you want more, just go to exomountaingear.com forward slash newsletter and you can sign up there. Um, and then one other thing uh, today is the last day to sign up for uh, kind of something you're doing um, with Heather's Choice, Steve, with Heather Kelly from Heather's Choice. And she's putting together kind of like a, a business crash course-ish thing for folks in the hunting industry or maybe who want to get into the hunting industry. Uh, you're going to be a speaker for this, Steve, and you know way more about it than I do. So uh, go ahead and let us know about what that is. Uh, I don't know if I know way more about it than you do, but <laughs> she she reached out and, and was putting together this 
it's basically for somebody who's like been wanting to start a business or has a business idea and just doesn't know like you know what's the next step to take she reached out to me and i think there's a like 10 or 11 other um you know guys in the industry guys gals in the industry that are have started companies or whatever it is um kind of on the entrepreneurship side and, and basically like it's like an hour hour and a half long kind of one-on-one conversation that i have with her while there's um you know it's all online so people can ask live questions uh, and it's basically a 12 week process with which each one of these people um i think it's fairly expensive 1200 bucks something like that um, to sign up for the whole course. But if it's something that, um, I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of value there for somebody who's like really like ready to, to start their own company, quit their job, do something. Um, you know, if that's, if that's you, uh, uh, you know, I think it could be really valuable for you. Um, so check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the best way to find that, um, is go to Instagram and then search for Heather Kelly um, of Heather's choice. I know from her personal profile there, she's been sending a lot more information about it, has information on the participants. There's a link to go sign up if you're interested. So again, this is very much if um, you're business oriented, want to start that business or take it to the next level, um, not just for the everyday hunter, but a lot of the guys, yourself included, Steve, as you said, are part of the hunting industry. And so it could be a, a cool way to learn there. But yeah, that's I think registration is closing at the end of the day today and things are kicking off there. So yeah, there's something for you there. And listener question, Steve, we had um, several things that were follow-ups to the death hike, some of which we covered in the podcast. But this one was a good question. It starts off, he's asking about the death hike, but he ends up asking several related questions just about shelters in general that I thought were worth touching on. So I'll I'll go ahead and dive in, begin to read this one. He wrote and said, I love the podcast about the death hike. It was very informative and as always, it motivated me to get outside of my comfort zone. I have a couple of questions regarding shelters, one of which partially relates to the death hike. says, first, a little background info. I'm currently in the market for a new shelter. Also, my son turned four this year and I'd like to start taking him on some backpacking trips with me. So I'm looking for an ultralight two-person shelter to use for hunting trips and backpacking with my son. Then he says, I keep going back and forth between getting a floorless mid or teepee style tent, such as a seek outside little bug out, or getting a more traditional freestanding tent. I'm wondering if you could talk through some of the things to consider with each option, especially as it relates to camping with a young kid. Um, So let's pause there. There's more to the question we'll get to in a second, but um, floorless versus traditional for hunting as well as backpacking with a kid. First thought, Steve. The TP, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave the kid side separate because that, the, well, I'll do the kid side first. If I will really want to take my kids and be very active with me, I haven't even thought about that. But yeah, that TP with a stove inside would be a fantastic option. Uh, I, I think. I really haven't got to that stage yet. My kids are two and four where I'm really taking them on a lot of trips. Um, but I imagine when you do everything I've heard is just make sure they're having a good time and they're comfortable so that if you could, if it is cold and rainy and snowing or whatever, you know, uh, to get them inside that teepee and turn on the stove, get that thing cooking and get them nice and warm, that probably would have a pretty huge impact on, um, on the, their enjoyment of the experience. So 
that's a great solution for that. Outside I, of that. Yeah, it's yeah. funny you say that because I heard, I didn't hear, I assumed <laughs> that <laughs> it may be in the future when his son is older that those trips might exist where they're hunting and have more bad weather. But being a dad of taking kids, I'm just more picky about taking them when there's decent weather in general, right? right? So, right. you know, as a hunter, we may not get to pick of this is the week I'm hunting elk. The weather is what it is we're going. But with family camping and backpacking with my kids, I've always kind of purposely not sheltered them from bad conditions. Like we'll go if there's some sort of difficulty. But in general, we tend to camp and do more with the kids outdoors uh, summer, spring, fall, decent weather. So to me, it's also a question of what does that look like? And then if, if you think of summer camping, especially, or even spring camping this time of year, um, I would want to know where you at and how are you backpacking with the kids? Cause even things like ticks, I mean, that might freak some kids mm. out. So maybe getting yeah. inside of a traditional tent and not being in a floral shelter, uh, is going to be easier, right? Keeps bugs away right. and things like that. So I, I think there are pros and cons for sure. Yeah, I didn't think about that floorless aspect of it. That definitely would play a role. It's because you're tough and you don't care. I didn't, <laughs> well, I didn't think, think about, about it. Kid no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in general, like I just don't. I don't know. I mean, if if you have to have, if budget only allows for one shelter, a teepee and stove is not my choice, right? Um, I think they have a great place um in the arsenal of shelters um but it's definitely not my my one choice i think a really a probably a you know some type of freestanding traditional tent that maybe has um like the right now my kind of go-to tent um when it's two people is that hilleberg anhan um ran that um like tyler bosch when i ran that on the sheep hunt last year and we ran bivy sacks with just that shell um Gosh, Justin borrowed it this year for the hike and, and slept in it with Garrett. And they really, really like that. It's a good setup. It's got, it, you can make it light by just running the shell. If you're in inclement weather, you can um, run the inner and the outer um, pretty versatile, solid tent. Obviously you don't have the stove option. Um, but I, th I think the stove option has a lot of value. If you're on an extended trip, um, if you're, you know, you Mark coming out to Colorado and you've got your one week to hunt. Um, I think there's some value there. If you get two days of crappy weather to be able to just hang out, um, and, and just sit in a, sit in there and run the stove and stay dry and warm. So you can kind of keep up when the weather does break, you're right there to hunt. Um, but for the most part, I'd rather, I don't, I'm not going to bring one. Like it has to be some really crummy weather for me to take one. So, um, yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, I, I really like for me, I have my bivy sack and tarp set up, which is like my go to go to for most of my trips. And then I have that Hilberg and hand for uh, if, if there's going to be really bad weather where you need a full on tent, um, which is, you know, honestly, few and far between and really bad weather uh, to me is like not just a day of bad weather because I can easily do that inside the tarp. Um, but, you know, a trip where you're it's late season, it's going to be raining and snowing on you every single day um yeah i don't know I, i'm just okay with being a little uncomfortable and not packing the extra weight so yeah yeah i was gonna say something very similar to the same of a like what he called a traditional um you know pole supported or and or freestanding tent 
um, something like a Hilberg, something like I've talked about the Nemo Hornet in the past, or you look at mm-hmm. Big Agnes options or MSR Hubba Hubba, something like that. They aren't as as trendy or as cool or as niche, but that's almost their strength that they can kind of go anywhere, do everything. Um, even if they're not four season, a lot of them can handle some pretty tough conditions and are very strong for how late they actually are in many instances. And exactly what you said, Steve, if it's like, if you have one option, that's a great option. If you want to have a tarp, if you want, yeah if you want to have a tarp if you want to have like i have a you know really small single person trekking pole tent um, my gossamer gear um if you want something like a seek outside that's great and they can be versatile but they're not going to be as versatile so to me it's like those are more targeted and specific and you still can get a lot of use out of them but if you're truly talking anywhere everywhere almost any time um something that's light something can take two people something could be good solo i'd be looking more to their traditional like invest in a good freestanding or pole supported traditional tent even better if like your hilleberg you mentioned steve you can run it where it's like pole and fly only and you don't need the body so you can go lighter um i just think that's a great way to go and it they don't there's so many guys going floorless or going tarp and going bivy or going hammock like doing all these things other than a quote-unquote tent (laughs) and i still think that those traditional tents still just have a ton of strengths and they're a great swiss army knife if you will yeah absolutely because if it's i think it's the only option if if you're wanting you know to do what he's doing you're, you're potentially by yourself you're potentially with your kids um you know seasons summer spring fall um, yeah, I think it's really your best option for sure. Yeah. And that's one reason I hang on to my, my Nemo Hornet, for example, is I can mm-hmm. run it light. I mean, it's a two pound shelter. Basically. Um, I can go solo, be really comfortable. I can take my kids. Um, yeah, it's just, it's really versatile. So, um, the second part of his question, he was basically saying if he goes with a mid or a TP, one of the benefits to that to him was running the ultralight stove. And he was wondering, he said, it seemed to to him that the death hike would have been the perfect scenario to run a stove with that type of shelter. So they had the option of drying out gear, warming up, etc. So he basically just flat out asked, is there a reason no one ran a tent and stove set up on the death hike? Are there downsides that I'm not considering or was the decision to not bring a stove truly just about saving the weight? Um I think weight's a factor for sure, but one thing that's maybe more unique on a death hike than the hunt is you're also just trying to conserve time and energy. Um, so not just the weight in your pack, but you get to the end of those long days on the death hike. And yeah, you make like night one, I think both groups, we built a little campfire, but at the same time, night two, for example, when it was coldest for us, for my group, I can speak to my group none of us wanted to do any more work than we had to do or spend any more time than we had to spend getting camp up, getting food in our bellies and going to bed. So it's like the extra time needed to set up a tent and then find wood and then get it going and warm it up and, you know, do all that stuff. Like, yes, weight was a factor, but time and simplicity and the saving of energy was definitely a factor where sure it would have been nicer to be warmer when it's negative two and you're camped on snow um 
but really, I mean, you're getting into your bag as quick as you can, sleeping, getting up and getting going. So for me, that's the thing, like you mentioned, Steve, if you have a hunt where there's potential downtime, potential bad weather where you're stuck in camp, uh, bad enough weather that's not going to allow you to hunt and you truly then to need to dry out gear, things like that, that's great for a stove. And that's probably more obviously common on hunts than something like the death hike. But when he says are there downsides he's not considering to a stove besides the extra weight, I would just add that downside, potential downside, of it's just another thing to take care of. It's another thing to feed. It's another thing to set up, another thing to pack. Um, just one more thing to deal with out there. Yeah. Yeah. I think a couple guys, I think, threw around the idea of bringing it. Um, but really, to me, like the stove, I, I guess I haven't done this, but we were, you know, camped on. Uh, you guys were on night two on I don't know how much snow, six feet of snow, eight feet of snow. Um, yeah. When you're like on top of that, you're not just going to put a stove on eight feet of snow and it's just going to melt its way down through the ground. <laughs> like you'd have to be able to, the snow would have to be shallow enough that you could physically dig out to the ground. Uh, and that wasn't going to happen or, and we didn't know um, what that was going to look like, right. Going into the trip, you just did not know what to expect. Um, so that'd be big number one too. Uh, and then the second side of that is, you know, a teepee is obviously heavily reliant on stakes um, and is going to need a lot of them, right? Um, probably eight stakes minimum for most teepees uh, and getting all those stakes into the ground where it's a really secure connection in the snow would have, would have not, it couldn't be done. It'd just take a lot of effort as you were kind of alluding to of effort and time getting that thing set up. So, and really this is a, this is like a mobile trip uh, where you're just, yeah. you know, potentially throwing that thing out in the dark, sleeping for six out, seven hours and then, waking up and tearing it all back down the tp's just not super convenient for that that's probably my biggest gripe with them um is a the space they were they require uh and they're just a little bit more sensitive to set up and you know it's kind of funny like for me people talk you know like oh a tarp and a baby sack you don't get great like um you know you're more exposed to the elements but the flip side of that is um like i've been hunting with when we have a tp and you, you end up hiking around for an hour looking for a flat spot to pitch that thing because it needs a big spot and you don't get to choose really where you're pitching it sometimes like this may be the only flat spot and it's a super exposed flat spot on a ridge it's going to get hammered with with wind and snow and rain where with the tp i can like dry it drop off find a little or with the baby sack and tarp i can drop off the top of the ridge and find a little deer bed and pitch that thing and be completely tucked up in, in some trees and have a lot of cover um, so there's a huge advantage to, I'm just a, yeah, a big proponent of that small footprint and, and easy to pitch. Um, so if it is a tent, I like a really narrow one person tent, um, that, that is fairly good at pitching and like slope terrain. Um, and then really there's nothing better than a baby sack and tarp. Cool. On the archery side, Steve, we had a couple bow site questions. Um, nice somewhat timely because i was just yeah. setting up a new hoyt <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so there was one basic one this is uh we'll get into a, a kind of more specific advanced not advanced question but a more specific question uh here in a sec but there was one beginner i'd call it basic question and i've mentioned in the past i love these i hate the idea that everyone should just know the basics and are afraid to ask simple questions so this is a simple question he says, can you give a brief explanation on the concept behind 
a combination of a three pin or five pin slider sight. So he's basically asking a multiple pin slider sight. He says, I have the general idea, but would prefer to hear it from the experts. So I guess that means you have to answer this question, Steve. He then says, I understand the concepts of a fixed multiple pin sight, and I understand the concept of a single pin slider, but how do you incorporate the concept of a multiple pin sliding sight? So apparently he just wants to know how that works. Like from the, from the basics, again, to me, I'm, it's one of those things like, I know how it works. So it's, <laughs> I think I understand what you're asking, but yeah, just the basics, Steve, on how to, how do you use multiple pins and a slider all at the same time? Um, yeah, the easiest way to describe it is just the multi-pin slider site is a single pin slider site um, with extra pins above it, below it, however you want it, wherever you want your pin. So just imagine that single pin slider site. Uh, now you put five pins in there, whatever you pick, whatever pin you want to be your slider pin, and that is your single pin slider site, right? there. You can get into the weeds a little bit where technically you can probably be pretty close um say say you've got three pins right and they're sighted in 20 30 40 and you you take that bottom pin that 40 pin it's you know pretty much everyone i know uses the bottom pin um as their floater because it just kind of makes the most sense um but you can technically do your top pin or your middle pin but that bottom pin's 40 you dial it to 60 Right, so you dial the whole dial the whole site housing down, so all the pins are moving with it. Your bottom pin is now at sixty. Potentially, your your middle pin should be really close to fifty. Like your pin gap will obviously open up as you shoot further, um, but you're going to be pretty dang close. So you could do, um, you can kind of use those pins, but that's it, it's kind of getting confusing, and, and not many guys do that. So really, just think about it as. Um, if it's three pins, if it's five pin, you just take that bottom pin and it becomes your slider and it starts. So it's sided in for 50. The second you start moving it, it's at 51, 52, you know, 60, 70, 73, like whatever, you know, whatever distance you dial that thing to. So, um, that's how it works. And so it gives you the advantage of, um, hunting, having those fixed pins, um, which I'm, you know, I'm a huge, if, if you don't have kind of target panic, um, or really it's kind of like sight pin confusion, right? Where if you, <laughs> you see so many pins, they just kind of like, you have a tough time, like picking the pin you need and focusing on it and focusing on the target. Some guys just see all those pins and it just kind of, you know, it's just along that line of target panic. It just creates like a, I don't know, just a sense of like, uh, it's just overwhelming for you. Um, I'm a huge, huge fan of that, whether it's three pin or five pin, I don't care, but in a, especially in an elk hunting scenario, um, in timber, just a single pin slider. Um, not that it can't be done and guys do it. Um, but you need to like get very, very proficient at shooting. You know, you'd set that slider to 30 and you know where to hold it 40, you know, where to hold it 20 without having the time to dial. Um, you know, so you'd have to really practice that a lot. Um, if you don't, then I think you're just going to be missing opportunities, right? Uh, elk comes in there at 20, it runs out and, you know, it wins you, but you stop it at 40. And, and instead of freaking just drawing back and shooting, you're now messing with your slider site. Like, oh no, I don't know where to hold. I better, you know, I got to redial this thing and you lose that second that you, that little tiny window of opportunity you're going to get to shoot that bull. So, um, yeah, slider sites, I'm a huge proponent of, I 
shot one for years. And then I actually just reverted back to doing, I do a six pin fixed pin sight. Um, and I'm basically from 30 to 80 yards on that is how I sight in. Um, kind of confusing, I know, but that's a system I've been doing for years and works pretty well for me. I just stopped. Frankly, for me, it was an acknowledgement that I just don't shoot as much as I used to. And I'm not as good of a shot as I was 10 years ago. And I don't really, you know, I'm not shooting like even, you know, 70 yards is really like if I practice all summer long, I feel pretty confident too, uh, depending on the, the animal and the situation, you know, everything that's not like winging a frontal shot at 70 yards. That's like perfect broadside animal knows I'm not there. There's no wind, like everything's got to be dialed to, to make that shot happen. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, I think that for me, that's been a system that I like. It's just simple and lightweight and um, easy. So, Yeah, just on the basics of that multi-pin slider, I always found it helpful to think about the basically having the sight in its, I call it the home position, right? So before you dial it, before you change it, you just start and the whole sight housing is at the home position. When it's at the home position, all of your pins, whether that's three or five or seven, you sight those pins in there. As soon as the sight leaves that home position, so as soon as you're beginning to dial and make an adjustment where the sight housing is moving, only one pin is relevant anymore. And as you said, for most guys, that's going to be your bottom pin. So just think, anytime this sight housing leaves the home position, as you said, Steve, it's a single pin sight effectively. Um, and just worry about that one pin. So the, there's many re- I can just kind of trying to anticipate questions for guys who may be newer too, like on why the bottom pin. Um, and a lot of that typically is to extend distance. So if you wanted to um, use your top pin as the slider pin, you certainly could, but you're not going to have as much range in your sight. Um, as you dial the sight down, you have a fixed amount of travel that's going to vary based on your sight. Um, and then if you're using the top pin, that's only going to get you to a certain distance. But if you're using your bottom pin, that's going to get you to an even further distance. Another reason a lot of guys use the bottom pin is that they may have that bottom pin be a smaller pin size. So like personally, I do this where my top pin may be an 019, which is like a thicker pin. And my bottom pin may be an 010. And as you get to distance that smaller pin size is covering up less on the target so if you had a bigger pin and now you're shooting that at extended distance it's covering up more of the target so it's harder to see or at least be as fine in your sight picture Um, so that's another reason you may only use the bottom pin to me there's only one advantage theoretical advantage to using the top pin for your slider and to me it doesn't matter personally but if you used your top pin slider and let's say that's a 20 yard pin, even if you had a five pin sight, so you had like 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, right? If you used your top pin as the slider, you could dial to 33 or you could dial to 47. So instead of using pin gaps in your pins, if your top pin is what you're using for your slider, you're now dialing and affecting your top pin you can go 20 plus at any specific increment that you want. That could be a theoretical advantage, like if you're shooting 3D or something and wanted to dial 38 instead of holding 40, you know, a little low. But again, not actu- not an actual advantage to me personally, but it's it's one of the reasons someone could consider a top pin. Yeah, I think 
yeah, I don't know how much weeds we want to go in because it gets it's kind <laughs> I know, of there's all kinds like, of things. That, yeah, yeah. The, like if you have like a three pin and you're really wanting to shoot like precision at long range, I think using the, putting your middle pin smack dab in the middle of the housing um, is probably going to give you the most precision, um, you know, for, for 3D and, and playing around. If you're trying to shoot, you know, 105 yards, um, you may not get that range out of the site housing. Um, but, uh, just that way, the reason being is, you, you know, your, your peep sites perfectly centered up or perfectly aligned with the, the circle of the site housing. And then that pin is smack dab in the middle of it. Uh, I find myself, it's very common when you're, you kind of naturally want to put whatever pin you're holding in the middle of the, the your site picture. Um, and it's, it's just like, I, I, I do it slightly, right? Like when I'm at long range, um, typically it just like, if I stop paying attention to how the, the peep site, um, is showing up and with the site housing aligning that there's usually daylight at the bottom of, of the, um, site housing for me. And I have to be very conscientious when I'm shooting the long distance to make sure that stays aligned. And then I'm using that pin, um, without cheating on it. So also, cause I'll sometimes what I'll uh, see is my pin gaps kind of start getting a little wonky. Like they don't follow perfectly in line. And that's because I'm doing that. It's just a very natural thing mm -hmm. um, to do where my pin gaps start getting a little bit um, bigger, trying to think bigger or smaller, I think bigger than they should be. Right. Like if you, if you're looking at your pins, they should all just like your site. Like if you look at um, site tapes, right. So you've got a slider site and it comes with 50 pre-built site tapes. Like, all those increments are just, you know, from 20 to 30 to 40 to 50, they're just slightly getting bigger at a very consistent pace. If you ever have a pin, you know, sometimes like, yeah, someone will be like their, their gap from 30 to 40 is a lot smaller than their gap from 40 to 50. That just means that they're doing something weird in the shot. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden their arrows disproportionately falling off from 40 to 50 as it was to 30 to 40. It should be this very consistent arc. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, just something to a little pro tip, 1 million and two there. Of, if you ever have <laughs> weird pin gaps, it's not because your arrows, you know, magically just like dropping a foot uh, in midair. It's that uh, um, you're doing something with how you're anchoring and, and shooting. So, yep. Well, Steve, you kind of somewhat started to answer ish the next question you didn't oh. know what the next question was so kudos. so the next question was um different person by the way but i wanted to group these together since we were talking both sites because i had a feeling this conversation may mint together and apparently it did so this question is what are the recommended positions for the site housing on a slider site in terms of elevation and windage gang adjustment um, he basically, long story, he had a few other details in there, but long story short, he says, I'd like to get as much range out of my sight as possible, both for practice and for fun. So Steve, just talk about how you personally begin to set up a bow sights. When are you adjusting or setting pins? When are, how are you setting the site housing as a whole first? Um, and then anything you can do specifically if you wanted to, to kind of maximize the range of the site to use as most travel as possible, get as most distance as possible. Most, um, your biggest limitation typically on distance is that you're going to drop the site housing so low that you're fletching that you're taught, you know, your, 
your cock vein fletch that's pointing up is going to hit the bottom of the site housing. That's going to be your, your biggest limitation on how far you can shoot. Sometimes it's the site itself doesn't have enough adjustment to get to that point, but pretty much any black gold spot hog, anything like that is that's going to be your limitation. So um, as far as setting the housing up, going back to what I was just talking about with like three pins and having your middle pin be smack dab middle in the housing. So whatever, say I'm shooting six pin like I do now, I want my third and fourth pin to be smack dab in the middle of the housing just for sight alignment. And so that's really what I'm doing. Um, you could almost, um, I kind of know how to know how to guess this, but if I, if I was trying to do this and it was the first time, I just immediately start at sighting in, um, say your 40 yard pin and just put that like right in the middle of the housing. And that's going to give you a very even distribution of your pins throughout the site housing. So if you, if you don't, um, if you don't do that, you could, if you're not paying attention to where your pins are in the housing, um, then you could, you know, then you could potentially like either have all your pins way too high in the housing or all of them way too bottom. And if you have them, if you start with, um, your 20 pin, like in the, in the middle of the housing, then you're, you're going to lose, um, distance and pins that you can stack in there until you hit the bottom of the site housing or the level on the bottom of the site housing. Um, I know it's, it's kind of confusing, but so really I, I would put my 40 yard pin right in the middle of the housing. And then to site that in, I'm simply, I would adjust the, the entire housing itself, right up and down. I'm not adjusting just that pin. I would adjust the entire housing up and down to site in that 40. And then I would basically lock the whole site housing in place and siting in the rest of the pins. I'm just then moving each pin individually to get everything dialed in. Um, that's how I would approach it. Um, on black gold sites, um, I used to run, gosh, this is, this needs to be a video. <laughs> I used to run, I think I, I, there's probably an old SNS archery video where I did show yeah. this. Um, but the, basically you have the two moving brackets, bar uh, clamps that, so that slide up and down. Well, one's fixed and one's moving, right? Um, on, so as you turn the dial, the actual portion where it transitions from what's fixed to the bow to what's sliding up and down, I used to set the top two of those flush. And the reason I did that was if I was ever to lose, um, lose your sight tape that's stuck to the side of the, you know, side of the site, um, then I would always like at the very least I I could lock that down and I had my fixed pins and then I just had a fixed pin sighting. So I had, I had a reference point within the sliding portion itself that I could always have a basically get back to zero in the middle of a hunt. Um, so if you, you had dialed it, if you don't have a reference point and you dial it and you, you know, you weren't paying attention to like re you know, basically I, I stick my, sight tape on there. And then I put another piece of tape over the top of it to like, make sure that doesn't fall off. Um, if you don't have that reference and it rained and your sight tape fell off, they'd be SOL on your trip. You'd have to be grabbing the judo points and start shooting a dead stump until you could kind of get back in the, in line. So, um, gosh, I guess that's it, man. That's a, it's kind of a complicated question to ask. Cause it's, um, there's a it lot of little things and it, and it. Yeah. It really depends on what site you're using. But for me, the most so the biggest thing is I want the pins perfectly centered in the peep or in the site housing. I don't want them all at the top or all at the bottom. So that's why I would start with my 40 yard pin um, or whatever your middle pin is. If it's three pin, then it'd be your 30. Um, I would start with that, put it in the middle of the housing, 
and then to site it in, then I'm just moving the entire site housing up and down. Um, and typically that's, oh man. So you got your, the, to move that up and down, you obviously you could turn the dial, but I'm not t- turning that. I'm actually just, there's going to be a, an elevation adjustment on the site housing as it mounts to uh, the windage bar yeah. um, for most like sites. So that's physically, yeah, the dovetail clamp there. That's physically what I would be moving up and down to site in that middle pin. Yep. Yeah. And one thing too, just especially for guys who are maybe newer and trying this, make sure that you are not like from the beginning, if you're setting up a new bow, that you're not manipulating peep height to match the site in the beginning. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you could slap on a brand new site and you find yourself coming to full draw, getting to anchor, and then going, oh, my peep needs to go up or down because of where the site's at. Don't do that. Do everything you can to like ignore the site at first or even maybe set peep heights close without a site just by your anchor point. Um, you know, that, that can be really important that you don't get those two mixed up, right? You need to set your peep height for your anchor point primarily, and then you're going to fine tune and work your site after the fact, if that makes sense. I've just, I've seen that happen where guys like make very weird adjustments to either their form and their anchor point and, or their peep site because of where the site housing is instead of working the site housing up into the correct site picture, if that makes sense. So, but yeah, uh, what you said, Steve is part of what I want to hit on is the position of your pins within the site housing again by default and i used to do this too is you start thinking okay i need to site my site in let me go 20 30 40 50 or what have you when in all reality it's often better to start with your middle pin or there about your middle pin get that in the middle of the housing and now you're gonna have some pins above it pins below it versus exactly what you described steve maybe setting the 20 pin in the middle and then having all your pins stacked below that um so yeah there's there's a ton of details there that we could talk about and on different sites you can do different things to to maximize travel but as you said steve a lot of times what you're going to run into is fletching contact more than the mechanics of the site Um, and then just one last random thing you can do if you want to squeak out every little bit of distance on a site is once you've found that like either mechanical end point of travel or the point at which you get fletching contact so you can no longer dial beyond that point and you're using your bottom pin. Uh, one other random step if you want to, and this is just for fun shooting, obviously it has nothing to do with hunting, I would hope. <laughs> it should have nothing to do with hunting. Is when you're in your far bottom position, you maximize your travel, you've maximized your pin, figure out what yardage you can use or are hitting that for the top of your level, your bubble level. So if you're like, oh, my pin, I can get out to 110. Well, what if you held the top of your bubble level on the center line of the vertical target? Maybe you can shoot to 140, I don't know. Um, But that's totally random and again, has nothing to do with hunting, but if you wanna shoot as far as you can shoot, then give that a shot as well, so. Cool. Yeah, there was a lot in there. As you said, Steve, there's probably uh, some concepts that are maybe a little bit hard to follow um, without video or explanation, but hopefully there's some good tips and tricks in there for you. 
Um, yeah, we'll do more on archery stuff. So feel free to send questions, uh, really anything. So it's, it's insane to me that we're in May. Holy cow, it's going to be June, July, August, and we're going to be hunting really soon. Can't wait. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thanks for the support. Don't forget uh, reviews, feedback, uh, the newsletter, all that good stuff. You'll get entered to win that gift card this month. Um, We will leave a link in the show notes to that founder series um, from Heather Kelly. Um, and we'll be back on Wednesday with a full length episode. If you haven't yet hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you get those new episodes automatically. We'll talk to you soon.